Our meditation this morning is from Acts 2. It's a long passage, but it's a, a good passage for us to consider as we think about how the Holy Spirit changed lives and changes lives. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lift up his voice and address them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at, the right, at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. <coughs> my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness and your presence, with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing what, that God had sown with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain 
that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our call, everyone the, whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So to those who received his word were baptized and were and there were added that day about three thousand souls. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, your message is not complicated, so protect us from rationalizing and making it complicated. May the words of the Spirit of the living God be upon Pastor Andrew this morning and his lips and our hearts too, so that we are moved to respond according to your purposes and glory, not our own. In Christ, who has prayed for us to be one, we ask it. Amen. Please be seated. <coughs> well, good morning. It's good to be with you on Pentecost and open this uh, passage of Scripture with you. You read the story of Pentecost a little bit earlier uh, in, the, in the service and that call to worship. Here they are uh, gathered together in a room and uh, the, the mighty rushing wind and the tongues of fire and uh, everything that comes upon them. And they know that Jesus has been true to his word. You know, we talked a little bit about Pentecost uh, or about the coming of the Spirit anyway. Uh, as we were looking at the Upper Room Discourse, John 14 to 17, and Jesus repeatedly there in John 14 and John 15 and John 16 uh, talked to them about the, the coming Holy Spirit. And, and here, indeed, uh, the Spirit is poured out on them. And Peter gets up, not by himself, standing with the eleven, it says in verse 14, and preaches this sermon that is every preacher's dream. Because 3,000 people uh, were converted. I mean, it's, it's amazing. We, we should never underestimate the power of the Word of God. Now, clearly, uh, there was something particular and special happening on that day. But what strikes me about this, and perhaps what struck you about the Pentecost story before, is just how changed the disciples are. You know, the disciples all the way through, you know, whether it's Matthew's account or Mark's account or John's account, wherever, uh, they're always the oligopistoi ones, the, the little faith ones. You know, we see them asking questions, Lord, you know, where are you going? How are we going to know the way? Or, or, Lord, you shall never die. Or, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Or, you know, Thomas, unless I put my fingers in his hands and my hand in his side, I'll, I'll never believe 
we just over and over again, there is this lack of certainty on the part of the disciples. And, and that brings us to a question that I think we all have. You know, how is it that we, we move from uncertainty to certainty? How, how is it that we, we wrestle with our doubts, we wrestle with uh, the questions that we have and move to a place uh, of certainty? Uh, because the disciples do. I mean, the apostles uh, are at a place of certainty, clearly, as they are standing up and speaking. We'll look at that in, in a little more detail in just a minute. But this idea of doubts, the other side of it, uh, the other side of certainty, is, is something that I just want to run by you because I think the honest point, the honest truth is we all have doubts. You know, some of us have intellectual doubts about, you know, whether God is, you know, actually true, if, if God is actually there. More of us probably have doubts or questions about, you know, if God is there, why is my life working out this way? Or why is that person's life working out that way? Why does God allow these horrible things in the world we wrestle through those types of things. So either these existential doubts or these experiential doubts, we, we wrestle with doubt. But doubt and belief are very closely linked. Um, Michael Polanyi, who is a, a philosopher, has done a lot with epistemology. How do we know what we know? Um, he, he says that doubt and belief are ultimately equivalent. I think what he means by that are they're, they're two sides of the same coin. Why? Because doubting any explicit statement uh, denies one belief in favor of other beliefs which are not doubted for the time being. So, in other words, you cannot doubt belief A uh, except on the basis of some belief B uh, that you're believing instead at that moment. So, for example, you can't say... No one can know enough to be certain about God and religion, belief A, without assuming at that moment that you know enough uh, about the nature of religious knowledge to be certain about that. So doubt and belief are really uh, two sides of the same coin. What's really important, I think, as we walk through this, and I hope to demonstrate to you from the text today, is, is to be honest with our doubt and beliefs, and to walk through the paths that God has for us to walk through, to pay attention, to learn the lessons, to ask the questions. Uh, the disciples do this. So I want to dive into this passage and look at it. And problem with printing your outline on Thursday or Friday is that you sometimes want to change it on Sunday. And, uh, and I want to change it today. I want to start with confidence, uh, point number two. Because it is what I've been presupposing. There is this confidence that the disciples have. Uh, you, you see it throughout this passage. So Peter stands with the eleven. He lifts up his voice and he addresses them. He steps into this moment with a boldness. They do. And then he goes on to say, men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you with mighty works, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. There's the language of, of knowledge and certainty there. 
He says in verse 29, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he died and was buried and that his tomb is with us this day. But he was a prophet and he was looking forward and foresaw the resurrection of the Christ, verse 31, that he was not abandoned to Hades where his flesh didn't see corruption. This Jesus God raised up of that we are all witnesses. There is a surety that Peter has and then It comes to the culmination in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Transformation has overtaken the disciples. Uh, They moved from being the little faith one to being the great faith ones. Uh, their, their hearts were changed through the attestation of the signs and wonders, uh, through looking through the scriptures, all sorts of things. Uh, there was a movement from questioning to certainty. It's important that we recognize that in our own lives, uh, that there is this movement that takes place. Sometimes we, we talk about doubt in the, in the church we talk about doubt as a bad thing, you know, like, don't, don't doubt this, or, you know, don't, we, we want to move people quickly away from their doubts, and, and there is, you know, obviously, I think there's a good side of that, we want to push people towards a solid rock, something that you can believe in, something that you can have certainty with, but you can't do it by just bypassing your doubts. Tim Keller, who's written a, a lot about this, He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body with no antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the Lord to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she fails over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts which should only be discarded after long reflection. The disciples came to a point of certainty, but they didn't do it without a journey through the various kinds of doubt. One of the things that I think is interesting in this passage, you know, verse 15 sort of stands out, you know, where Peter gets up and he says, these men are not drunk as you imagine. So so what's been being said during this time? You know, as, as the disciples, you know, as the, we see the Spirit moving, we see they dis- begin to speak in tongues, people can hear them in their own language. People are saying, ah, you can just discard this as a, um, you know, as a drunken phenomena. You know, they don't want to give any credence to it. And, and what you see at that moment is, is those people are not dealing with their doubts. They, they are just... They are just uh, doubling down on their worldview that says, you know, nothing supernatural could happen in this way, so therefore we must dismiss it by drunkenness, and you could fill in many other things. And what I would say with that is you're running across a group of people who are, you know, claiming the drunkenness, who are not being honest, you know, with the questions that come into their mind. Rather than saying, wow, this was unexpected, 
I wonder what this might be, this whole sound of rushing wind and tongues of fire. They just easily dismiss it. And I think this is something that we need to resist. You know, we need to resist, you know, just easily dismissing the questions that come into our mind and, and, and more patiently and more carefully ask, ask questions, you know, about our questions. Doubt our doubts is what Keller often talks about. Let me just give you a, sort of an example of that. And, and maybe it's a good example, maybe it's not, but here we go. Uh, you know, we, we oftentimes, uh, we, we have a certain set of, of worldviews about our physical existence, and, and we experience it day by day. Uh, you know, we eat, we drink, our sexuality, everything is a part of our physical existence. A and then we, we have teaching that comes in that, that tells us how we are to operate. We have biblical teaching that comes in that tells us how we're to operate in the physical realm. But it doesn't match up oftentimes with our particular beliefs about our physicality, about our bodies, about our sexuality, any of these different things. So rather than, you know, doubt our doubts or question like, what does this have to do? We just reject it. And we say, that doesn't have anything to do with my physicality here and now. That's something that's just spiritual. It's for those who need a crutch. And, and we do ourselves a disservice when we are not honest with the questions that come into our hearts and minds. And part of what this passage, I think, encourages us to do in a very positive way as we look at these disciples is to say, walk through your journey. Walk through your journey uh, and, and trust, you know, this is what I would say as a pastor, walk through your journey because I have full confidence that you will find that the scriptures uh, are able to support themselves and that the story of the Bible that is offered is, is, is really the best uh, and the most satisfying story that there is in terms of our lives. And that's really the second point. You notice the, you know, the reality here that what Peter does is he, he does come out of the story of the Scriptures. Um, and this was something that he had to work through himself because he thought that the story was going in one direction. You know, they were looking for an earthly Messiah, and that's why at different times, you know, Peter would uh, actually be obstructionist with regards to Jesus, and he would say, you know, no, nobody's going to kill you, but he was, he was reading the story a different way, and so when this question of Jesus' death came in, he wasn't able to grapple with it. But now, as he recognizes how the story is played out, he is able to stand up with confidence as he's wrestled with his own interpretation of the Scripture, the doubts and the questions that he had there, he is able to come out, come and preach in a way that is incredibly Bible-centered. I mean, you notice in this sermon that he has three long passages from the Old Testament, from Joel chapter 2, from Psalm uh, 16, and then from Psalm 110. Uh, in all of these, he is going and he's saying, look it, these things shouldn't surprise you. The things that have been going on, the things that you're seeing today, this is all what has been uttered by the prophet Joel. This is what David was talking about in Psalm 16. This is what the psalmist was mentioning in Psalm 110. All of these things should not surprise you. 
because this is what the Bible has been teaching us, and this is the story that we are in. And that's so important for us, right? Like as we are going through our journeys uh, and, and we're wrestling with our questions, we're wrestling with our doubts, don't ever do it apart from the Bible. Uh, you, know, they, you, you have to have the scriptures as, as being a part of that and, and wrestling through, asking the, the honest questions, but then allowing honest answers to come into your story as well. And you see that's what Peter does, because what's, what's interesting is that he, he doesn't just stop with the Old Testament. Everything that he talks about here, he interprets in light of Christ. So we see over and over again, uh, men of Israel, hear these words, verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus, verse 23, God raised this Jesus up, verse 24, of the Christ, verse 31, this Jesus, verse 32, this Jesus whom you crucified, verse 36. What Peter recognizes is that all of the Bible is Christ-centered. It, it all focuses, whether it's, you know, the Old Testament looking forward to the work of Christ, the New Testament, you know, looking back, centering on that work of Christ. Everything centers on that work of Christ. And so what I would posit to you this morning is that you'll never be able to make sense of your doubts outside of the work of Christ. That it's, it's the work of Christ that is going to shed the most satisfactory light on your doubts, on your struggles, on all of these things. It is through that lens that you're going to find the things that your heart is longing for. What do I mean by that? Well, look at what we see here, and I, I've got this third point in the outline where I say, you know, they have a confidence that is Christ-centered, and it is coursing with grace. What do I mean by that? Well, again, we can't make sense of our questions about life outside of the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's the one that is bringing a new purity. You know, uh, Peter, in the, in the sermon here, he, he exhorts uh, the crowd, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's verse 38. Uh, earlier in the passage, we, we read that Jesus was, was killed. He was crucified, and then he was resurrected. Uh, he was not abandoned to Hades, nor does his flesh see corruption. And as that, he is the first fruits of us. What, what Peter is saying, what the disciples are standing on, is that what we recognize in Christ, and, and perhaps most importantly of anything, and, and begins to address many of the deepest questions that we have in life, is that in Christ, there is a new purity both for us uh, as guilty sinners and for us as members of a world that is polluted by sin and death. Let's take each one of those. You know, we, we oftentimes when we think about the work that Jesus came to do, we, we think about it in terms of atonement, right? 
We think about it in terms of uh, forgiveness, justification, all of these words that, that we use. And, and what we, we are saying is that we were guilty of something, and, and Jesus died in order to forgive the guilt of our sin. And, and that's absolutely true. One of the things that's so encouraging about this is that Peter is preaching to a crowd that he says, this Jesus whom you crucified. Like, can you imagine that? You know, like, what, what could be more heinous than putting to death the Lamb of God? What, what could be more heinous than taking the nail and driving them into the hands and the feet of the only innocent one that had ever lived? And yet Peter looks at the crowd and he says, this is the Jesus whom you crucified who is now offering you forgiveness of your sins. And it's one of the, the, the most freeing, one of the most sense-making things of the Scripture story that this is the invitation. Because, you know, we recognize ourselves that we are all guilty. Now, there's, there's a certain physical sense in which we can say we didn't drive the nails into Jesus' hands and into His feet. But then there's a spiritual sense in which we have to acknowledge that we did right? That, that it, was, it was our sin that pounded those nails. It was our, you know, greed. It was our lustful thoughts. It was our bits of anger. It was all of these things that we go through day after day, sometimes hour after hour. These are what drove the nails. And so when Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified, we recognize that he's talking to us. But he is also, at the same time, saying, this is the invitation. In Him, you can find your sins forgiven. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Do you ever wonder, like, how did Peter say that? Because sometimes, we, you know, we don't get that with that. I, I think for a long time, I saw an angry Peter. Repent and be baptized, you know, something like that. I don't do that very well. I, I saw an angry Peter, but I'm not sure that that's the Peter that it was. Because remember, Peter was the denier. Peter was the one who said, no, nah, I, I never knew him. And, and I think it's probably more likely that, that Peter said, repent and be baptized with tears. Because he recognized the beauty and the forgiveness and the purity that is in Christ Jesus. And that's the invitation that comes to each one of us. Like, yes, you killed the Messiah, for sure. Just as surely as if you were there and you drove the nails into his hands. But the forgiveness is free. And the forgiveness is complete and it's pure. And it not only covers our guilt, but it also covers the pollution because, you know, frankly, some of you here are, are much more distracted 
by the pollution of sin than you are by the guilt of sin. Some of you come in feeling the weight of your own uh, uh, mishaps and your own guilt. More of you probably come in feeling the, the, the pollution of sin where we ha- are going through a world in which we are seeing children shot and how do we deal with that. We're going through a world in which we have to deal with the abuse that was perpetrated on us when we were younger. We're going through a world in, in which we uh, see cancer come in. We, we feel the pollution of all of these things around us, and they're real, but we didn't necessarily do something for it. It's, it's not a result of our particular guilt. They're a part of living in this world distinguish these things. Remember some of you, the Exxon Valdez uh, a number of years ago crashed in, in, nor- in uh, northern Alaska. You know, the captain had guilt, right? I think he was drinking, was apart from his post. Uh, there was guilt on his part for what he did. The waterfowl that were then covered with the oil and could no longer fly and died, you know, that was the pollution of sin, Right? And both of these things exist in our world. There's the guilt and the pollution. But what, what Peter is offering and what, you know, will get at the core of your doubts. You know, because remember, Peter is the one who said to Jesus, you'll never wash me. Right? But what gets at the core of it is his realization that that is exactly what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to wash away both the guilt and the pollution of sin. And the good news is this, if God accepts us at all, he accepts us wholeheartedly. He covers us completely with the spotless robe of righteousness. This robe of divine acceptance does not come in gray, but only in dazzling white. And brothers and sisters, that, that is us. That's this new purity that is promised uh, as Peter stands up and preaches. Why is it that 3,000 souls responded? Because that is our deepest longing, right? I mean, we, we want to be clean. And Peter says, this Jesus, whom you crucified, did that in order that we might be clean, both from the guilt and the pollution of sin. He also offers the new power. The new power, of course, is the Holy Spirit. We see it in verse 17, 18, uh, later on, 31, 38. Uh, this, this promise of the, the Holy Spirit being poured out. And we've talked a lot about this. Um, I said in the first service, we, we've talked about the Holy Spirit so much, I think we're bordering on becoming Pentecostal. Um, which is great in that sense. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the Holy Spirit, Jesus promised, John 14, John 15, John 16, uh, he promised the, this power that would come and descend on his people, that we wouldn't have to go through life alone, that we wouldn't have to you know, serve, uh, honor the Lord alone, that we would have the promised Holy Spirit who would give us that strength and would walk with us every single step of the way. If you think about Peter, how different he is. You know, when, the, when they came in the garden for Peter, you know, what was the power 
uh, when they came in the garden for Jesus and Peter was there, what was the power that Peter grabbed for? It was a sword, right? Caked off the ear of Malchus. But it's so different now. He's not standing there. He's, you know, he'll give himself up bodily in so many different ways because he's got the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we start talk about starting in the gospel and staying in the gospel. We start in the gospel because Jesus makes us clean. We stay in the gospel because Jesus gives us his spirit uh, to enable us to walk through life day by day and gives us the strength to do so. And then lastly, uh, a new people. I love this part. You know, uh, Peter says in verse 38, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. You know, baptism, what does it do? A couple of things. One, it signifies that washing, that cleansing. Uh, it is the sign and the seal that points to that reality in our lives. But what else does baptism do? It unites us, right? It unites us with the people of God. We're reminded in baptism that we're not our own anymore, that we belong, body and soul, life and death, to God. We belong, body and soul, life and death, to those who are brothers and sisters, members of the body of Christ. We are, we're given a people. And Pentecost is very clear. I mean, it's very much in mind, Pentecost, because it's the undoing of Babel. Right? So in verse 5, you know, as they were dwelling in Jerusalem, there were devout men from every nation. Uh, and as they preached, they heard it was Parthenians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome. There were Jews, proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians. And everybody was responding to the grace of God. And this is one of the things that's just so encouraging for us, you know, that it's not just the Jews. And this is what, you know, the, the, the early Christians, the apostles, they had to wrestle through sort of this assumption or this doubt, like, could this gospel be for other people? And the answer came back in a resounding way, absolutely. This is a worldwide gospel. This is something that's not just for Jews. It's not just for the Dutch. It's not just for any particular ethnic group. It is for everybody. And as we continue to push into that, we are pushing into uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit, uh, the Pentecost people uh, that, that God is making. And then finally, there is a new purpose uh, that Peter and others talk about. Where do you see that? Uh, look at verse 39. It has a lot to do with the new people, right? For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are as far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, how does God call people to himself? Well, sometimes it's immediately, right? Just out in nature and you recognize there's a God and you fall down on your knees and, and you worship and but more often than not, it's by people being sent, preaching, you know, here, missionaries in your neighborhoods, in your cities. I mean, it is, it is that aspect of, of calling, right? That's our purpose. Our, our purpose is to be part of this ever-growing group of people that are God's people. 
because there are people who are outside now who are inside ultimately. How are they going to be inside? Is it not through the proclamation of the word, through the sharing of the gospel, through the sharing of our lives, deeds of, of love and mercy, uh, attending a, a testimony of, of Jesus' finished work? Absolutely. And that is our purpose. And Peter, Peter recognized it. You know, and think about how this has changed. Again, you know, Peter, James and John, they came to Jesus and they said, you know, through their mother, give it to us, you know, when you come into your kingdom, that one of us may sit on the right and one may be on the left. I mean, that was their, that was their thought of what their purpose was. Their purpose was to rule an earthly kingdom and was to sit on the right and to sit on the left, have these places of prominence. But what Jesus is saying and what they're recognizing is it's very different. Because, you know, every single one of those 11, with the exception of John, dies a martyr. It wasn't the right and the left that they were thinking about. Was it a place of glory? Absolutely. Uh, because they recognized that merely to be a doorman in the kingdom of heaven, merely to have the lowest place in the kingdom of heaven, is to have all the places of prominence that we could ever want. Brothers and sisters, this is... This is the Pentecost message. It's such good news. You know, I, I, I see why people were drawn to it in that day, in that age, because it was so different than what they had been taught. It's so different than what they had, had heard. It's so much more inclusive, so much more freeing. There was so much that set it apart from Judaism or from the pagan religions of the Greeks or the Romans. But it's still meaningful for you and I. It's still, it's still what we long for. And if we will do the hard work of looking at our questions, of doubting our doubts, of walking the path, I believe, I believe that you will find the greatest joy of all your life. One writer puts it this way, the gospel is absurd. And the life of Jesus is meaningless unless we believe that he lived and he died and he rose again with but one purpose in mind, to make a brand new, purified creation. Not to make people with better morals, but to create a community of prophets and professional lovers, men and women, who would surrender to the mystery of the fire of the spirit that burns within, who would live in ever greater fidelity to the omnipresent word of God, who would enter into the center of it all, to the very heart and mystery of Christ, into the center of the flame that consumes, purifies, and sets everything aglow with peace, with joy, with boldness, and with extravagant, furious love. This, my friends, is what it means to be a Christian. Amen. Father, as we contemplate this word, we pray that you would ignite the flame that would draw us into the center of that furious love. Lord, we we acknowledge that we have all sorts of questions. We have doubts. 
we, we don't always understand. We certainly find ourselves incapable of even bringing our will into the equation and doing the things that we want to do. But Lord, what we've heard today is that Jesus has finished the work. And that work now is being uh, ministered by the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would uh, make us sensitive to that movement and that you would lift us up uh, and strengthen us in this good news of the gospel. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.